This week, the effects of extreme weather on our ability to grow food. If you aggregate all of it together, it's quite a lot of agricultural production that we are losing. And 80 years ago, physicists predicted hydrogen could be a metal. Have they now created it? So what we have found is a, a new phase of hydrogen that appears to be sort of the onset to this very elusive, long sought after metallic phase. Plus, what you can look forward to in science this year. This is The Nature Podcast for January the 7th, 2016. Happy New Year. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. As always, at the beginning of the show, first show of the new year, 2016, brave reporter Lizzie Gibney is here to try and predict what's going to happen. Hi, Lizzie. I'm here with my crystal ball. Excellent. Glad you brought it with you. Now, you also brought it with you last year, we should say, and uh, we thought it might be fun to just look at 2015's predictions and just see how right you were so that we know how much to trust you in your upcoming predictions for 2016. Oh dear, I'm not sure how good my record's going to be, but, but well, let's see. you know, it was a whole year ago that we did this, but your predictions for 2015 were as follows. Dwarf planet hunt. Now, we did we did visit Ceres. Yes, we visited Ceres. We, we now know what its bright spot is made of. And also we went to Pluto and got some absolutely stunning pictures from that. But I guess that was maybe a little bit of an easier prediction, wasn't it? It was, um, it was on NASA's calendar for quite some time. They do plan their schedules pretty far ahead. Now, you also predicted... And again, this is a little bit of a cheat. The LHC was reopening at, at higher energy than ever before. Yes, so that, uh, I think the first collisions that actually produced new science were in June. And it was kind of, went at a bit of a slower pace than physicists there might have liked, but still gathered a lot of data and even started to produce some of the first little hints, little bumps and excesses that could potentially turn out to be uh, a new particle. Now, you also predicted very presciently the UK election. Did that mean anything for science in the end? It's meaning quite a lot of upheaval, actually, yeah. So this is the first Conservative-only government in a while because the previous one was Conservative but also uh, in a coalition. And we're seeing quite a lot of shake-up to the research funding system. So uh, we haven't been told what it's going to be, but there's probably going to be a new overarching umbrella body which will subsume the research councils into it. And so there's a, there's a, there's a lot of upheaval happening, basically. Um, and yeah, it has stemmed from from the new government. There we go. So that was uh, in brief last year. Then moving on, uh, I presume you've got your calendar all set for 2016. Uh, what what sort of events are already on the schedule? <laughs> Okay, so there are a few things that we know will be happening, or we really hope will be happening. Every few years, the orbits of Earth and Mars bring them uh, a little bit closer together than normal, so you can do the trip in about seven months. So that's why we've got ExoMars 16, which is a mission from the European Space Agency and the Russian Space Agency, Roscosmos. So ExoMars 2016 will be going over there, and that's um, got an orbiter, which will be collecting gases in in the uh, atmosphere of Mars. And then that's also got like a test lander for the mission that follows in 2018. And of course, there was supposed to be the uh, NASA Mars InSight mission, which was delayed. So there was a problem uh, with one of the parts. So it's supposed to go there and actually look at uh, Mars quakes and the planet seismology, which would have been really exciting. Um, But it's now going to be delayed for, I think, about two years until another one of these opportunities comes around uh, when Earth and Mars are in very handy positions to travel between the two. So so that's that's a would have been 2016. But but 
not anymore, unfortunately. Now, uh, we're going to look even deeper into space for some other some other sort of space highlights. As always, when you have me on the show, there are quite a few space highlights. One other thing to mention was that obviously, you know, my mission of choice, uh, which is Rosetta, will be ending. So in September, um, the orbiter will crash land as gently as possible into the comet. So there will be a lot of tears. That, I think is by far my safest prediction is that someone at ESA will cry. Um, yeah, but but there's another mission that we'll be launching. Um, so the OSIRIS-REx, NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission will be uh, heading off to an asteroid and that's going to try and return a sample from that asteroid. So it won't get there for a little while, but something else on the horizon to look forward to in the future. People could barely cope with Philae losing its power. I mean, how are they going to cope when Rosetta just plunges straight into that I thing? know, and for some people this has been a mission they've been working on for 20-odd years. I mean, it's often like that with these big space missions, but to have it end so abruptly, sometimes they kind of fade into the light. Now, um, we're continuing to look for two rather elusive things, dark matter and gravitational waves. Yeah, so I think um, we may have mentioned, again, it was a switch on, but not necessarily expecting that much from it. Um, We may have mentioned this last year, so LIGO, advanced LIGO, in fact, um, turned on again last year. And there were immediately a few rumours that they had instantly actually seen gravitational waves. Um, At the time of recording, we didn't know if that was true or not. But a lot of physicists really do think that this will happen this year, that we will see gravitational waves. Um, As we spoke a lot about in 2015, Einstein was a very smart chap and, um, and he predicted that we should get gravitational waves when you have the movement of these very massive objects like spiraling neutron stars. They should cause this ripple in space time and with the uh, upgrades that have, that, that have happened to the advanced LIGO, we really think it should be able to see them. Some slightly harder predictions to make, perhaps in in the biological sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, 2015, was very much the year of CRISPR, the year of gene editing. Mm. And there are some attempts now to use gene editing techniques in human clinical trials. Exactly. So I think we, we all, we've discussed CRISPR an awful lot. And I think this is an interesting area to look at is because there's so much debate that's gone on about the safety and um, kind of ethical guidelines around editing the genome. Um, and this is an area that I think broadly almost all scientists agree gene editing can have a really positive effect. So there's going to be a couple of different human clinical trials using gene editing techniques in order to combat diseases such as haemophilia and also beta thalassemia. Uh, I think one of them has been approved and the other one we think is going to go ahead as well in 2016. And elsewhere in biology, uh, Google... They are big into science. They just employed Tom Insel, who used to direct the National Institute of Mental Health in the US, and they're awarding a giant amount of money to some cardiology. Yeah, so it's a $50 million grant. And what's kind of novel about it is that it's going to one single research group. So it will be an interdisciplinary group um, and it may draw in people from from different institutes. But ultimately, it'll be one group working, attacking the problem in one way and with a whopping 50 million paycheck. Um, So it'll be fantastic to see what happens and who gets it. I think, you know, Google Life Sciences is growing rapidly. They're kind of fingers in so many different pies now and many different diseases. And as you say, mental health um, is a a new area. And I think that's just going to continue growing. And and maybe we'll start seeing some really interesting stuff come out of it. At the moment, we've been writing an awful lot about what's going in, as in Google are starting to tackle this and they're throwing money here and 
um, and maybe we'll start to see some results. Finally then, two stories with a political bent. The US is already, it's unbelievable here in the UK, it's already been gearing up for months towards the election of a new president, which will also be in 2016. Yeah, and that will have, I mean, obviously it has big knock-on effects for everything in a country. But I suppose there will be a really big impact if the White House turns Republican, if we have a a Republican president. What's probably more likely if we have a Republican president come November is that there will be some cuts to climate change funding and also potentially social science funding. In in other kind of related, it's not not about elections, but um, it's kind of me trying to shoehorn physics in um, in yet another section. But um, a really exciting project will be starting up in the Middle East. It's called Sesame and it's a synchrotron. So it's a a light source used for probing biological samples and materials. um, And it'll be the first one in the Middle East. And it's quite fantastic that it's a collaboration between countries that really do not otherwise collaborate. So you've got Israel, Palestine, Iran, all together working on this project. Um, And it's going to open up for for users towards the end of this year. So I think that's really exciting. It's now a very cutting edge facility because they've done a lot of upgrades. But most of the pieces of equipment that have gone into making it are basically secondhand old bits of equipment from Europe and elsewhere around the world that people have donated exactly for this purpose. So it gives you a little warm, fuzzy feeling. Now, in the magazine this week, a full list and the details of all the predictions you've so far been making. But of course, you know, you only you only get a page and a half or whatever it is to write them all down. Were there any that you really liked that you were not able to add to the shortlist? There were so many. I have. I feel very lucky now that I have in my possession this, this amazing long list of things that will happen this year. Um, one is that... China is planning a super collider which could potentially follow on from the LHC and they may well get, um, the government may well allocate their funding this year so they've got a proposal already in, they will finish the design this year and they might get that money so if that's secured that would be massive. Other things quite generally to, to rattle through, the end of Ebola we did predict that last year, unfortunately sadly that didn't happen but it is very much on the cards for very early in fact in 2016 um, and there's also a few other um, diseases guinea worm could be eradicated uh, we're closer than ever with polio so that's a bit of good news there um, and there are lots more but I guess I should stop there We're looking forward to many of your predictions coming true in 2016 if your record from last year is anything to go by. Lizzie Gibney, thank you very much. Thank you. And you can read more on all those predictions in the Nature News piece online now at nature.com forward slash news. Coming up late in the show, new year, new phase of hydrogen. Thanks to all the negotiators in Paris, the world now has a global climate deal. But that doesn't mean the planet just stops warming immediately. It looks like 2015 was the hottest year on record and 2016 is predicted to be at least as hot. And around the world we're beginning to feel the impact of this heat in the form of things like sea level rise and changes to extreme weather events. But we still have lots to learn about how extreme weather affects us. In particular, how do these disasters, things like heat waves, floods and droughts, affect the food we grow? A group of researchers has now tried to answer that question by analysing data on past disasters. This could help us understand how the extreme weather of the future will affect agriculture. I asked one of the authors, Pedram Rouhani, what we already know about the impacts of climate change on agriculture. 
Mainly in the past, people and myself included, we were looking at a seasonal average rainfall or seasonal temperature uh, and how that will influence if, if these, these seasonal measures change over time, how that influences crop production. Whereas the more extreme areas of temperature and rainfall had really, nobody had looked at those before. Uh, to our knowledge. And so what did you do in this study to investigate extreme weather specifically? Any type of disasters that takes place in the world and that is reported and that has some impact on humans is put in a database. So we went to that database, used all the information that they provided on floods, heat waves, cold waves and droughts um, and used a very simple but robust statistical approach to understand what the impact of these events were on crop production. Why hasn't anyone kind of done this analysis on this data before? Well, we were wondering the same thing, to be honest. (laughs) And once you did the analysis, you found that there's a particular signal for extreme heat events and droughts. We found significant impact for droughts and heat waves on crop production. So that year, that country will see a reduction of about 10% of their production. 10%, if if you aggregate all of it together, it's quite a lot of agricultural production that we're losing. You may remember what happened in 2010. Um, There was a massive heat wave where large areas of Russia were literally burning, and Russia decided to stop their exports of wheat, and with Russia being one of the most important wheat-producing countries in the world, that had a disastrous impact. Now, of course, for us living in the UK, the extreme weather event that's kind of freshest in our mind right now is the flooding, but Hmm. you found that flooding didn't actually have a negative effect on crop yield. We were, ourselves, we were a bit surprised by that. We can only speculate that Flooding is a more localized event. Uh, The majority of the floods happen in small regions and may not necessarily impact agricultural land. Uh, I don't think that currently up north here in England a lot has been growing uh, and so these floods may not have necessarily destroyed agriculture. They are destroying houses, bridges, uh, and and people's homes, but but not maybe necessarily uh, agricultural land. So in this study, you're just quantifying the damages in a year with an extreme event, but uh, we know certain types of extreme weather events are expected to increase in frequency as the world warms. Is this work just a warning for what might happen, or does it help us in any way to plan or adapt to what we think might happen? Well, our work is mainly on a historical basis to look at what has happened in the past. It will give some idea of the damages that may take place uh, now and in the future. And farmers need to be prepared for those specific events uh, that that will take place. But we just wanted to understand the magnitude of these losses. But you're right in saying, I mean, in the future, we expect that the severity and the intensity of these uh, extremes will will increase. 
So we definitely need to be better prepared. That was Pedram Rohani of the University of Sussex. Check out the full paper, as ever, at nature.com forward slash nature. Ah, a new year has begun. Lots of people make resolutions, don't they, to change something or start a new phase. Well, scientists working with the element hydrogen have taken this truism quite literally. They've managed to push hydrogen into a new phase, a whole new form, by squeezing it really hard. Hydrogen is the physicist's favourite plaything. It's the simplest element in the periodic table, just one electron in its shell, and it's everywhere. There are decades of predictions about what might happen to hydrogen under intense pressures, and how useful that could be. Here to tell us about the latest squeeze attempt is Edinburgh University's Phil Dalladay-Simpson. We started with a refresher on regular hydrogen. On Earth, uh, it's largely found in sort of a molecular, a molecular form, so H2. And it's floating around as a gas, basically. Yes, and it's, yeah, it's floating around as a gas. Physicists have often made predictions about what other states it might appear in. And um, what are some of the ones they've already found and that, and that they've predicted? So currently, experimentally, uh, we know there was uh, four, fit, four molecular solid phases of hydrogen. But it's been predicted since 1935 that hydrogen would adopt an atomic metallic state of hydrogen at much higher pressures. The way to get it to change from one state to another, from, from previous work, we know that the best way to do that is simply, I say simply, to just squeeze it, right? Yeah, yeah essentially, yeah, squeeze it between two diamonds. When you squeeze a solid, the, the neighbouring molecules start interacting and that, then the um, solid tries to find a more efficient way to start packing itself. What's been the history of work in this area? When physicists have squeezed hydrogen in various ways before, what have they allowed it to do? A lot of work was done in the 1980s uh, when diamond anvil cells sort of reached their maturity and you could um, actually reach like, very high pressures. And in this period of time, there was three uh, phases of hydrogen, solid phases of hydrogen known or discovered. And then um, the most recent phase, before the, the phase discussed in the paper, was phase four. And that was discovered by the same group here at Edinburgh uh, a couple of years ago and simultaneously another group in, uh, in Germany. So that's our sort of current best phase, dot, 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 which leads us nicely on, doesn't it, to your new paper. Tell us about your results. So what we have found is um, a new phase of hydrogen that appears to be sort of the onset to this very elusive, long sought-after metallic phase. Did you just get that when you squeezed it harder than anyone else had squeezed it before? Yeah, essentially, yeah. So the previous limit was around about 310 GPA, roughly about the pressure at the centre of the Earth. And uh, we extended that up to 400 GPA which we believe to be the sort of technical limit for, this, uh, for these diamond anvil cells at the moment. And we should say that GPA just means gigapascals, which is a standard unit of measurement for pressure. So you've recreated pressures higher than that of, at the centre of the Earth on the <laughs> surface of the Earth in your lab. And it's amazing because the device you can do it in is, is you know, handheld. You could just carry that round in your hand. It's, it's very, very small. That sounds extremely dangerous to have that be so portable. Yeah, but the, the volumes are so small, so if anything does happen, it's, it's not going to be a big explosion or anything. It's just like a little pop. Sounds like a, a gunshot if the diamonds go. Oh, wow. So you've got these... You're squishing this stuff between, I suppose... Uh, a couple of diamonds, right? Like a diamond tweezer or something. Yeah, so yeah, two, it's basically the same diamonds you get in your jewellery. So they're brilliant, brilliantly cut diamonds. And we polish um, one, the tip of these diamonds flat and then we squeeze the, the hydrogen between these two diamonds. And tell us a little bit then about what you saw when you did this to hydrogen. We, we measure the sort of vibrational properties of hydrogen. So like the molecule will vibrate and rotate. 
and uh, we monitor that using like hitting it with a laser. And what we saw is like distinct changes in how this vibration responds with pressure. And this is very indicative of a, a phase transition. Are you sure you've got there? Are you at you're at your um, sort of mythical hydrogen phase? We're not actually at the um, the metallic state yet, but uh, comparing it with sort of the competitive uh, structures which are theoretically proposed for the metallic state, they share very sort of similar characteristics. So it looks like we're like on the cusp almost of reaching this uh, this metallic state. Now, this might seem like a naive suggestion, Phil, but just squeeze it harder and see what happens, right? Isn't that what you're doing next? Well, the problem is, is these experiments are very hard to get to these, these pressures. There's only very sort of few experiments that actually reach 400 GPA, and uh, we've never reached an excess of 400 GPA. So this might actually be the technical limit from the apparatus. So we'd have to look at other approaches to getting these high pressures or, or possibly spend some work trying to characterise uh, more of this new phase. And as you said, this piece of kit that you've got is pretty small and you use pretty small quantities of hydrogen. But if you could scale it up, what would this stuff be useful for other than answering the prayers of all the theorists who predicted it so long ago? Uh, there's been a lot of predictions such as like superconductivity, like it might be a superconductor at room temperatures, um, and also superfluidity. So you could solve all the problems that superconductors would solve at room temperature. These devices, which use superconductors, have to be very, very big and uh, have like lots of cryogenics and stuff. Whereas if you could do it at room temperature, you could make very sort of small devices and very, very efficient devices. That was Phil Dalladay Simpson. You can find his team's paper at nature.com slash nature. That's all for this very first show of the year. We hope you'll join us for the rest of 2016 as we do our very best to distill the best science into half an hour each week. If your New Year's resolution is to do more exercise, stick us in your earbuds and get on that treadmill. If you're trying to eat less chocolate, we can't really help you. But good luck. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Listener.